Welcome again to a story of Fabry disease in Australia. Thus far, we have introduced Fabry disease, a rare but treatable genetic disease, and discussed the importance of early detection and treatment to patient outcomes. We have also reviewed the state of Fabry disease in Australia in terms of local considerations for screening, early detection and treatment. We continue now through the patient journey. Welcome uh, to the podcast on Fabry disease. I am Andrew Kornberg. I work as a paediatric neurologist at the Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And I'm Carolyn Elloway. I'm a paediatrician, clinical geneticist, metabolic physician with the Sydney Children's Hospital Network. And that encompasses the Children's Hospital at Westmead and also Sydney Children's Hospital. In this podcast, the third of the series on Fabry disease, we're going to discuss a, a patient and a patient journey, and that will illustrate many of the things that we have discussed in the previous two podcasts. To the listeners, I would uh, suggest that you listen to the first two podcasts. Carolyn, would you like to present your case? Yeah, so um, this particular boy, he's now 16 years of age, but I met him for the first time when he was 12. He was referred to the Genetic Metabolic Clinic at the Children's Hospital at Westmead because he'd had symptoms that had been occurring over about a three-year period. And this included some intermittent uh, burning feelings in his hands and his feet, some occasional abdominal pain, um, intermittent episodes of diarrhoea. But what was really quite remarkable was this family lived up in northern New South Wales in the country. And in summer, it gets really hot. And he used to love playing sport. He, in summer, he played cricket. In winter, he played footy. And he was actually extremely good at sport and um, at one stage was uh, a rep player for cricket. But it got to a point where he was not able to stand out in the sun for prolonged periods of time because he had reduced sweating and he really just couldn't tolerate being out in the heat. And if he was out in the heat or if he did exert himself, he would be really tired and lethargic for about a day or two. And during this time, the family had been to see their general practitioner. They'd been to see a paediatrician. They were referred to a physiotherapist because he'd had some intermittent joint pains. And despite visiting these clinicians and allied health professionals, no one was actually able to make a specific diagnosis. The diagnoses included possible arthritis, chronic fatigue syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome. At one stage, he was labelled as having growing pains, but his mother knew that this wasn't right. There was clearly something not right with her son. And she thought he might have a mitochondrial disorder, which is, you know, not a reason, unreasonable suggestion. And so she obtained a referral from her paediatrician to the metabolic clinic at Westmead. But when the history was teased out a little bit more and the patient examined, he was found to have two or three angiokeratoma. And the history of this intermittent burning sensation made us think of the possibility of Fabry disease. He was tested for Fabry disease by measuring the enzyme activity, the alpha-galactosidase activity, and it was significantly reduced. 
We then went on and organised genetic testing of the GLA gene and he had a pathogenic variant within that gene. So he had a biochemical diagnosis of Fabry disease, which was confirmed by mutation within the gene. Interestingly, there was no family history of Fabry disease and the, fa the family history was elicited at the first consultation. But we know that sometimes, particularly the females, can be asymptomatic and still have Fabry disease. And so we arranged cascade testing and it turned out that his mother also carried the same variant within the GLA gene, a maternal aunt, maternal grandmother, and this patient's sister all had the same variant within the gene. His brother did not have the variant within the gene. So this boy was the first in the family to be diagnosed with Fabry disease, and we were able to identify four other females who also have Fabry disease, fortunately, who are currently asymptomatic. So after the diagnosis was established, the disease was progressing. Fortunately, he did not have any renal involvement. There were no neurological um, or central neurological uh, concerns, and he had no cardiac abnormalities. His ECG was normal and his echocardiogram was normal which is great because there was no evidence of other organ involvement. But as I've mentioned before, this disease is progressive. So without treatment, we would expect those organs to be ultimately involved. He qualified for enzyme replacement therapy after we were able to demonstrate that I wasn't able to adequately manage his pain by other symptomatic measures. Can I just ask you, how many years were these symptoms occurring before ultimately he was diagnosed? So he was having symptoms for probably around three years prior to coming to the metabolic clinic. Um, it takes a little time to establish a diagnosis and he wasn't immediately eligible for enzyme replacement therapy. So there was still about an 18 month period after the initial diagnosis before he started treatment. So he was suffering with symptoms, particularly uh, the acroparesthesias, for at least four and a half and possibly five years before he actually started specific treatment for Fabry disease. As I said, this family lived up in northern New South Wales. So they had to travel from their country town down to Sydney have the enzyme in replacement therapy, and which took up most of the day, and then travel back to their town. This took out about three days, a fortnight. Once we're able to establish that he had no complications associated with the enzyme um, infusions, I was then able to transfer his therapy closer to home. And I must just say, before starting enzyme replacement therapy, the symptoms had progressed to a point where there were many days he was missing school because he couldn't go out um, at lunchtime because it was too hot in summer. And sometimes even being in the classroom was too hot, so he'd be sent home because he felt such um, extreme fatigue and that would exacerbate one of these um, uh, painful episodes in the hands and the feet. So he missed quite a bit of time off school and the parents eventually decided to homeschool him. He wasn't able to play sport. He had limited contact with his mates. And so I was concerned that he was becoming depressed. 
Once he started enzyme replacement therapy, after a period of time, there was gradual improvement in his uh, symptoms. He was able to go back to school. He now rarely misses a day from school and he's back to playing sport, but he limits and can control what activities he does. He still can't stand out on the cricket field for many hours in the sun, but he swims, he's starting to play water polo, and he's back socialising with his friends. So he's in a much better frame of mind with a significantly improved quality of life. So this has certainly been life-changing for this child and his family. It's, a, it's an amazing case. I mean, I think that um, time frame of symptoms for four to five years, which sounded quite significant and functionally impairing and affecting his day-to-day -day life, um, if someone thought of the diagnosis earlier and screened, his life could have been even more improved, I would say. You know, we, we talked about in a previous podcast the importance of a family history um, in, in a patient that you suspect having a Fabry disease. His case is the opposite in many ways. After you've made the diagnosis in the index patient, you're able to diagnose other family members. That's unusual, isn't it? Yeah, particularly in the paediatric setting. Yeah. Often um, a paediatric patient will be referred to me because there's been an adult that's been diagnosed with Fabry disease. So I guess it's a little unusual, but it's, you know, not unexpected either. The other thing to mention is not everyone has a family history of Fabry disease. And I have um, been involved in one female case in particular who was referred by an ophthalmologist because of the finding of uh, cornea verticillata. She was referred to the ophthalmologist by an optometrist because she had some trouble reading and we were able to establish a diagnosis of Fabry disease based on genetic testing of the GLA gene. Her mutation was actually de novo. So testing other family members they were not affected. So I guess that tells us that you must also think of this diagnosis in patients who have episodic symptoms. Yes. And I think um, the case you present with the heat intolerance and the poor sweating and other things like that are really classic uh, symptoms in paediatric Fabry. They are classic symptoms but often symptoms that aren't necessarily volunteered by yep. a patient or their family. So if there's a thought that a patient could have Fabry disease, it's important to ask about these specific symptoms. Can I just ask one further question about this case? Um, did he have a lot of investigations along this, his journey before the diagnosis? He certainly did have quite a lot of investigations by the paediatrician, the general practitioner, Blood tests, imaging. Blood tests. Uh, I don't recall any cerebral imaging. Um, he had x-rays of various joints, um, but lots of blood tests and urine tests. So I guess this case illustrates a couple of things. It illustrates that diagnosis and then treatment in the index patient can change their lives, but not only that, prevent the complications going forward. And in this case, look at the whole family, and if someone else is affected, then close monitoring of them can occur. Yeah, so that's important. So the close monitoring. So in that particular case, 
whilst the four female relatives were asymptomatic and don't have evidence of proteinuria, albuminuria, uh, ECG cardiology, uh, echocardiogram are normal, they still do need to be monitored for the evolution of the uh, complications of Fabry disease. But as I mentioned, this boy's sister has the mutation. So she too is at risk of having a male with Fabry disease. So knowing that information, she can have accurate genetic counselling, um, particularly around the time of wanting to have her own family. So it's really the message is it's very, very important to think of and diagnose Fabry. Yes. Can I just ask us a, a question out of left field? Let's just say this boy, um, you weren't, he saw someone who wasn't as, as astute as you and pick up the skin lesions. What are the consequences of not making a diagnosis in this individual? We would anticipate progressive involvement of other organs leading to kidney involvement, ultimately renal failure, possibly requiring dialysis or kidney transplant. There can be cardiac involvement with life-threatening cardiac arrhythmias, left ventricular hypertrophy, valvular disease. There's a risk of transient ischemic attacks at an early age and also strokes. Um, but there's also reduced life expectancy. So the natural history is that males with Fabry disease do have a reduced life expectancy, often in their fifth, sixth decades. Wow. So there's significant consequences of not making a diagnosis. In my experience as a paediatric neurologist um, in other disorders where, you know, there's a, a journey for the families, there can be impacts on the family itself. Was, was that the case in this family? Yeah, it certainly was because obviously you've got parents who are extremely concerned about the symptoms of their child, the frustration at doctors not make, being able to make a diagnosis and there's no specific treatment for those symptoms that he was experiencing. The fact that he was missing time from school, impacting on his school life, the social isolation, that all does have a significant impact on the family. But even when we were able to make a diagnosis and start treatment, whilst there's a lot of positives to starting treatment, that was still a significant impact on the family having to travel to a centre for enzyme replacement therapy. But over the course of the last few years that we've able to transfer the treatment closer to home and that there's been an improved quality of life of the child, reduction in symptoms, um, prevention of progressive organ damage, the strain on the family has been eased. I congratulate you on making that diagnosis. Just to wrap up this podcast, I think there's a couple of things that I really would like to stress and discuss. Um, one is, what do you think are the key points that you have for paediatricians and subspecialists um, with regard to Fabry disease? I guess the key thing is that we want paediatricians to become aware of this condition, um, be aware of the early signs and symptoms and think about the possibility of a patient having Fabry disease. 
And the important features are whilst the signs and symptoms can be fairly nonspecific, they are recurrent, um, there may be eye changes with the corneal verticillata and if you see that then that's almost like almost certainly going to be Fabry disease but also the importance of a family history so pulling all that information together can certainly um, aid in making a diagnosis. But even if a paediatrician doesn't recall all the information that we've provided, there are centres of excellence where an experienced clinician can be phoned and provide information over the phone to a paediatrician or a subspecialist to help um, with establishing a diagnosis. What sort of resources are available for paediatricians, subspecialists um, to learn more about Fabry disease? There's um, a lot of medical literature now available on Fabry disease. There's a lot of educational um, material. We will be providing links to some of that material as part of the podcast. Um, the diagnosis can be made easier now with the availability of testing uh, enzyme activity in blood collected on a dry blood spot card and not only available in tertiary centres where we work, but also paediatricians in either private practice or remote areas. They can uh, access information on the Sanofi Genzyme website. A pathology request form can be downloaded for the patient to take to a local pathology service and have the blood collected and sent to the National Referral Laboratory. So I think with time, we're making it easier in a sense for paediatricians to help make a diagnosis. Yeah, I, I think we, we will undertake um, providing a lot more information in the links in this podcast, both research articles uh, as well as some reviews. Thanks very much, Carolyn, for participating in this podcast. I've learnt a lot and I'm sure our listeners will uh, learn a lot about Fabry disease. Is there any message that you want to uh, give our listeners? So the key messages are think of Fabry disease, make a diagnosis and refer early so that we can establish treatment at an early phase of the disease. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for joining us about this important discussion on Fabry disease. For more information about blood testing kits, please visit sanofigenzymeonline.com.au forward slash pathology forms forward slash PDF and see our notes for resources and links. And remember, Fabry disease is rare, but your screening practice doesn't have to be.